Hey, friendly people. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Hey, Dr. Suzanne Gray. What's up? Hello, Joe Cotter. Just here hanging out with you, man. You ready to talk about some fancy science jello? Love this. So this was really cool. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to to kind of set the stage for how this grantee is approaching pancreatic cancer from so many different angles. I was really blown away by her background, her expertise. Um, Definitely made me second guess my uh, work ethic over the years. But... I've been second guessing your work ethic for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But that's fine. Nothing to respond to that. Okay, so Dr. Laura Wood is our guest today. She is, deep breath, an associate professor in the Department of Pathology and director of GI Pathology in the Division of Gastrointestinal and Liver Pathology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Man, she's done some great work. You you started off the interview by talking about some groundbreaking work she did back in 2007. We got into some new directions her lab has taken in recent years, all around a real problem cancer, pancreatic cancer. Joe, I think you are going to love this podcast because it takes a disease. So it takes pancreatic cancer, which many of us associate with kind of a scary space, so hard to treat and difficult to detect. And Laura walks us through just this beautiful combination of approaches that her lab takes to study pancreatic cancer. And her goal, which I absolutely love, is to flip pancreatic cancer just kind of on its head and to say, okay, pancreatic cancer is difficult to treat at the end of the spectrum when it has been found late. So let's find it early. Let's find the folks where pancreatic cancer is going to be a problem and let's let's treat the disease early. So Laura is gonna take us through this beautiful story of how do we do that? When do we do that? I mean, her approach is just one of the most beautiful that I know of. You're gonna feel hope at the end of this podcast. And when I can combine the words hope with pancreatic cancer, it just makes me feel good. So let's listen. Good morning, Laura. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Susanna. Well, we are so excited to have you today. So if you're ready, we're just going to jump right in. Sounds good. Okay. So you have been at what you do for a long time. So we're going to we're going to go back a few years because I really want to help our listeners to understand how you have become such an expert and why I am so excited to talk to you today because you were a graduate student when you did something really special. You were among really the first in the world to sequence the whole exome of a human tumor. So, okay, listeners, don't don't click off on us. So first of all, Laura, help us understand what is a whole exome. Why should we be excited about this? Sure. So all of you, all of the cells in someone's body, including the cells in a cancer, um, have their genetic information encoded in something called DNA. And DNA, um, you have a lot of it in your cells, but only a portion of that actually codes for proteins. And those proteins that are encoded by the DNA um, are what cells produce and actually do the work in the cells. And so what the whole exome of your DNA is, is 
the entire part of your DNA that codes for proteins. And so sometimes you'll hear the term whole genome. That means all of the DNA in a cell, but whole exome means just the portion of that DNA that encodes proteins. And that um, is thought to be some of the most important DNA in the cell because the mutations in that will affect the proteins. Mutations being you know, errors or mistakes in the DNA will affect the proteins. Um, and it's those DNA mistakes that affect proteins that then can um, stepwise transform or turn a normal cell into a cancer cell. Okay, well that, that all makes a lot of sense though. So if whole exomes then really are helping us to understand kind of the, the meat of the, the DNA that we really care about. Like if, if we were reading a, a book and we took out maybe all the prepositions, we might, we might now still be able to understand really the message that the author was trying to get across, but we were able to get rid of kind of some accessory language. So, so now we know what a whole exome is and you've kind of led us down a path of understanding why being able to read that really important part of the book or the DNA is going to be so essential because we have to know what the mutations are. So help us though to understand why was this technical accomplishment that you did? Why was sequencing it or reading it? Why was it such a big deal? Right. So back when we did it, which I want to highlight is not that long ago, it was back in 2007. So it was only 13 years. And I only say that to when I when I first explained how we did it then versus how it can be done now, it's just astronomically different. Um, so back then, the only the main sequencing technology we had was something called Sanger sequencing. And so to do that, you had to, within a tube, make many, many copies of a single fragment of DNA um, and then do the sequencing reaction on it. So it had to be in a single tube and they were short fragments. Um, and practically what this translated to was that to sequence a whole exome, you had to do 200,000 individual in-tube reactions. And then the, the, um, the result of that would be a pattern of uh, peaks on a computer screen that we then had to look at and interpret as to whether there was a mutation there. And so 200,000 of those per tumor that had to be performed in a tube and then looked at on a computer screen. Um, so it was a ton of work. Um, and so I think it was a huge accomplishment at that time, partly because the technology hadn't really caught up to be being able to do it quickly. So now to do a whole exome, there's something called next generation sequencing. We just do sequencing in a completely different way. So we don't no longer have these individual tubes anymore. We can kind of do a whole exome in one tube. Um, and so now to do a whole exome, it's just, you know, one tube of DNA, you do some preparation, put it on a sequencer, and it costs, you know, $1,000 versus, you know, back then it cost millions of dollars, took years to do it. And now it takes, you know, a week and $1,000. So it's just the, the huge advance in the technology that's happened in those, those years has been incredible. Yeah, it's really hard to wrap our minds around the fact that it, it was only 13 years ago. And I'm thinking about you as a graduate student staring and staring and staring and staring at that computer screen, looking at those peaks 
and looking for those mutations, those differences. So, and the incredible investment of not only time, but money for the information that now we can get and just, you're right, you use the word astronomical. It's an astronomical difference um, that now we, we can get in um, one tube <laughs> versus thousands and thousands for in one week um, and for, you know, many, 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 many patients. So um, thank you. That was a lovely explanation. So what you described is is an enormous change that has happened, really where we have a new era in our understanding of the genomes of cancers. Help us to understand. Now we have this technical technological advance, but how does having this technology help us? How does having a more complete picture of a cancer genome really change our understanding of that cancer? Sure. So I think at an individual cancer level, um, what it lets us do is really comprehensively catalog the mutations that are in an individual cancer. And so one of the, the main drivers of tumorigenesis is having these DNA mistakes um, that they kind of disrupt the normal function of the proteins in your cells. Some of them get turned on or activated. Some of them get turned off or inactivated. And they disrupt these very important cellular processes that then result in cells becoming cancerous. And so when we understand what the mutations are, it opens up the opportunity to come up with treatments that target those mutations or early detection approaches that identify those mutations. So these mutations that we have, they're very specific for um, either cancers or precancers. So if we come up with, you know, DNA-based approaches to identify the mutations either in the blood or in the um, in other, you know, biospecimens, we can then use that as a as a tool for early detection. And there are are now, you know, laboratories and companies that are focused on really leveraging these DNA mutations as an approach for early detection. Um, but I think the um, so that's why it matters on the individual patient level. But I think the kind of evolution of sequencing technology has just greatly increased the number of patients we can sequence. So for those original studies, they were 22 patients and it cost millions of dollars, years of work to do those 22 patients. Now, because it's so much cheaper and, and technically um, more straightforward to do the sequencing, we've now sequenced thousands or tens of thousands of patients. We've done kind of more creative sampling with, with sequencing multiple regions of a patient's tumor to understand how it evolves, sequencing metastases. And so I think being able to sequence more tumors has really helped us understand the differences between different patients' tumors and even between different regions in the same patient. So it sounds like in these 13 years, we have a greater understanding of not only the, the capability that having a picture of what mutations an individual patient has means, because the more the more you know, and you said now we have 22 patients versus hundreds, tens of thousands of patients, that gives us an idea of this mutation might mean X, Y, and Z. So that's on a population level that helps us to have kind of a catalog of data, but also to know that if we just are at our doctor's office and we are having our, our blood checked for 
lots of different things, maybe for you know, hemoglobin levels, um, that we are very rapidly developing tests that can detect mutations in our blood, so DNA that comes from tumors that might contain a mutation that because of this ability to sequence these pieces of tumor DNA could lead to very early detection. So it sounds like we have kind of two strategies or two pieces of um, information that's come from this very rapid evolution of this technique. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, there's in the early detection side, which you very nicely kind of described where we're developing blood tests, you know, kind of PN cancer blood tests, and then also tests in specific organs that can identify these mutations to detect cancer earlier. Um, and then also some of the mutations are actually able to be specifically targeted. And so there's a, a huge push for doing uh, therapy targeted at specific mutations. All right. I want to kind of dive down a little bit more into where you are now because you're doing such, doing some really fun things. And so let's, let's talk about some of what you've done in the last few years. And that is that a lot of what your lab is focused on has been pancreatic cancer. And since we just talked about early detection, I think that's a nice segue because early detection of pancreatic cancer and surveillance of this disease are just enormous challenges. So remind us, why do these remain such obstacles for us clinically? Sure. I mean, one of the reasons is anatomic, meaning just where the pancreas is in the body, right? It's deep in the abdomen. It's not something you can do with external examination like women can do with breast cancer. It's not easily reached by, by you know, a colonoscope like colon cancer. So it's just, it's a hard organ to screen and sample. And kind of because of where it is, you often don't have um, symptoms until, until the disease reaches a very late stage. There's just some space in there that a tumor can grow before it actually causes problems. I think the other side of it is, is the numbers in pancreatic cancer, though it's a very deadly cancer. Um, so the majority of patients who are diagnosed um, end up dying of the disease. It's not common enough that population screening really makes sense. And so we, we kind of need a two-tiered approach where we identify patients who are at high risk, and then those, those folks can undergo screening and surveillance. I think the, with population-based screening in pancreatic cancer, because of the, the lower incidence, you'll get into issues with um, false positives in any screening test and then having interventions that patients don't need. And so I think just the kind of population level numbers kind of also create a challenge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You don't, well, first of all, I loved you reminding us, first of all, I, I don't think most of us think about our pancreas a whole lot. We should, it's really important. <laughs> most of us don't my think kids, about- My kids do because it's, um, it's involved in sugar. <laughs> so they love the pancreas because it lets them eat sugar. Right. I mean, I'm an immunologist. And so I'm always reminding people, you never think about your immune system until you're sick. And then you're actually thinking about it all the time because it's helping you. So, all right. So we don't, we don't think about our pancreas all the time. Um, so I, I appreciate you reminding us that it, it is not an, an organ that is accessible. It's a great picture that reminding us, like we can do self breast exams and feel uh, anatomical abnormalities in the breast, and you're not gonna do that um, either as a clinician or a, a patient in the pancreas. So that, that's a challenge. And then it 
elevates when you are, are thinking about a, a even biopsy samples for the pancreas. And, and I honestly, I've never thought about the fact that there's space around the pancreas. So there's actually room for tumor growth. Um, and there are other obvious cancers that fall into that category, like the ovaries. So there, there is room that you can actually have tumor growth and and not have any idea that it's happening, right? Right. Yeah. Not have any idea, not have pain and, and things until the, the tumors are, are, are large and potentially um, have spread to other areas. So thank you. That was a, that was a really lovely description. So I think one of the, and then you also shared with us that because the population burden is not large, it just, it maybe doesn't make sense to screen everybody because we might find things that aren't cancerous and overtreat and perhaps do more harm than good in this space. So what it sounds like you're leading us down a road to think about is how would we find though individuals who are at high risk for pancreatic cancer and be able to treat them at very early stages, which is something you think a lot about is right. early detection. I mean, one thing I do want to highlight is though the population burden is not large, so it's the incidence is not high, it's actually on course to be the second leading cause of cancer death within a few years. And so yeah, it is a really important thing to study, but it's just we can't use our more traditional approaches that we do with the more common cancers. Right. Um, right. So that there are certain populations that are known now to be at higher risk, those with can pancreatic cancer in their family, um, those with precancerous uh, lesions called pancreatic cysts that I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes because it's one of the focuses in my lab. Um, and then those with things like new onset diabetes, chronic pancreatitis. And so there, are, we know some clinical things and that can help us to kind of hone in on the population that, that is at highest risk. So then your, I don't want to say the math on doing the screening kind of makes more sense in this population to avoid patients getting, you know, invasive procedures that they don't need. I think one of the other challenges with the pancreas, it's not easy to biopsy, it's not easy to reach. And so, you know, if we use the example of breast cancer, if you have a breast mass and you get a breast biopsy, I don't want to say that that procedure is not painful or not, not difficult to go through, but it, there's not a lot of longer term morbidity or bad effects of that procedure. Whereas with, with the pancreas, you have to get an endoscope, you have to get a needle into your pancreas. There's a non-zero risk of pancreatitis with that. Um, and then kind of the next step after that is a major surgery. So you have to make sure that your screening tests are really, really good tests um, for pancreas. Those are such great points. So I, I want to hone in a little bit more on that excellent point you just made that you want to make sure that as you go down this road of biopsy, that you are working with patients who are at elevated risk. So let, let's talk a little bit more about how you would hone in on those high risk populations. I'd, I'd like to know a little bit about what you've learned from genetics about the development of, and you, you mentioned this a few minutes ago, you threw out lots of, lots of <laughs> different types of precancerous lesions that can occur in the pancreas. And so I think for our listeners, maybe help us to understand what does that even mean? What does it mean to be sure. 
well, first of all, the word lesion, that's a, that's a big one. So precancerous, I think we can all, un, we can understand. That means before it becomes cancerous. But what does lesion help us to understand and maybe break that down a little bit? Sure. Um, so lesion is a really general term that just means something abnormal. Um, and so the, one of the challenges with with cancer in general, I think there's a lot of terms and and some of them don't have very precise meanings. I, I hesitate from using the term tumor because tumor to some people implies cancer and to other people just implies a mass. And so that one's not very precise. Lesion by itself is also not very precise. It just means something abnormal. And so precancerous lesion just means something in an organ, in this case, the pancreas, that's kind of taken a few steps toward becoming a cancer, but isn't all the way there. And the key point with those is that they haven't become invasive yet. They haven't invaded into the into the organ, they haven't invaded into the bloodstream. So if you take them out by surgery, they can be cured because they haven't invaded. They don't have any risk of spread beyond the pancreas and they can be cured surgically. Okay. Um, so precancerous is, has a risk for becoming cancer, but isn't cancer yet. All right, perfect. So then let's go back to the genetics question. So to help us to understand what have you learned from genetics about the development of those precancerous lesions? Sure. So, um, you know, when, when the original exomes were sequenced, you know, back 13 years ago, we got a really comprehensive look at what are the genetic alterations that are in advanced pancreatic cancer. But what that didn't tell us is kind of, the order in which they occur as cells are turning into cancer. And that is a really important question, both for understanding the biology and just understanding the mechanisms of how tumor genesis works, but also understanding how these different mutations might be useful when we think about early detection. So these, these precancerous lesions, these kind of groups of cells that have taken a step toward becoming cancer, but aren't there yet, they're super, super common in the pancreas. Um, there've been, studies at autopsy. So after um, patients without any sort of pancreatic disease die, if you look at their pancreas at autopsy, the majority of, of older people have at least one precancerous lesion in their pancreas. So they're super, super common. Most of them are not at high risk for progressing to pancreatic cancer. And so if you develop a test that identifies everybody with one of those precancerous lesions, you do a pancreatic surgery on half the population, which obviously nobody wants to do. Um, and so what we really need are markers that specifically identify which of those precancerous lesions, what's the small subset that's more likely to turn into cancer. And that I think is where the genetics can really help because by studying the precancerous uh, lesions, we've worked out the timing of these alterations. We know which ones occur early, which ones occur kind of in the middle and which ones occur really late. And then based on that, we would not want to use those early mutations as markers because they would identify everyone. We want to use those later mutations that identify those lesions that are at the highest risk. Um, and so that's, I think, where the, the genetics can really help us hone in not only on the biology, but also on the, the utility of these mutations as biomarkers. Oh, that's really interesting. It, it was reminding me of a... I was thinking about the precancerous lesion, like a, a child you might punish and have um, kind of sent to a corner 
And it's like, we've all done that. And we've all experienced that with our, with our kids of having to have some kind of remediation that's pretty low level. And we, what we would really want to know would be the kids that that works for and the kids that that doesn't. And which kids are going to maybe come out of the corner um, early. Maybe most kids do that. Um, but we would really want to know, and, and that's fine. That's not a big deal if you kind of turn around and, and maybe give us a side eye. But then you kind of sit back down and you realize you've, you've kind of maybe not done a great thing. And then when your time and time out is over, it's fine. You go back to playing and you don't, you know, bite your friend or do whatever you did again. What we would really want to know, though, is the, the kid that hung out in the corner and did their time, but then five minutes later, 10 minutes later, when the timeout was up, came out and then just socked their friend again for no reason. Uh, we would really want to understand which ones of those precancerous lesions are truly going to be problematic. And that, it seems like you need, you need to understand the timing and you need to under, uh, understand which ones you need a different intervention for that the, the, ti the timeout just isn't going to work. Um, yeah, and I think there's there's a good comparison here to thinking about colon cancer screening, because when you get a, a colonoscopy to screen for colon cancer, any polyp that, that the doctor finds, they just take out because it's, you know, once you're doing the colonoscopy, taking out a polyp is very low risk. There's no morbidity associated with it. So in colon, you don't need to be able to look at the different polyps and tell you know, before you take them out, which one is at high risk and which isn't because you just take them all out. Um, it is, of course, important afterwards to know what was in the polyps because that predicts your risk going forward. But, you know, as far as intervention goes, you just take out all the polyps because they're there. There's no side effect of doing it. Whereas in the pancreas, you have to do a major surgery and take out a big chunk of someone's pancreas. There's a lot of um, morbidity associated with that. And so you really need to be able to, before you can take them out, you need to be able to stratify, again, which kid is going to come back out of the corner and hit their friend from the kid that's going to be totally fine. So it's really the, you really need markers that can tell you before you do any intervention, what the risk is. You know, one of the things that I've read about a lot of in, in your work and in the literature are driver genes. And I'd be interested if you could share with our audience. So what, what is a driver gene, first of all? Because I think that's going to play a big role in what you're really going after, which is how do you understand which one of these precancerous lesions is really going to be the problem? So first, can you just tell us, what is a driver gene? Sure. So a driver gene is a gene whose mutations impact the function of a cell in a way that promotes that cell turning into a cancer cell. Um, so, you know, cancer cells have to replicate their DNA. Um, they often make extra mistakes in their DNA when they replicate it. And so when you sequence a cancer exome or cancer genome, you find a pretty large number of mutations. In the pancreatic cancer exomes, there tend to be 50 or 60. If you look at whole genome, it's in the thousands. But a much smaller number of those mutations actually impact cell function. Many of those are are kind of the opposite of drivers, which are passengers, which are just mistakes that happen. They don't have any impact, but they just get propagated in the cells. And so it's important in our work to figure out which of the mutations we find are driver mutations that are actually 
impacting cell function and driving it toward being a cancer and which are just the ones that are along for the ride. Okay, cool. So in our kid in the corner, that might be the instigator, like the kid who whispers to the other kid and is like, hey, <laughs> in five minutes, we're going to, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the, we're, we're the passenger is that, that the kid's wearing a green shirt, right? It's true. It's there, but it doesn't matter. Okay. That he's so wearing a green shirt or that he had toast for breakfast. Like it's all these kind of extra observations, but they're not important for the actual functional implication. And so how important do you think these driver genes seem to be based on your observations in these early stages of pancreatic? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're really critical. They're certainly not the only molecular alteration that um, puts a cell down the path to becoming a cancer, but I think they're one of the best understood. Um, and I think they are really important. There are lots of different evidences for that, but I think one of the ways to look at it is how common are they? And there's a gene called KRAS, and we, the name of the gene isn't that important, but it's altered in 95% of pancreatic cancers, and it's altered in a very specific way in one of a couple different positions. And so something that is so universally true in pancreatic cancer, to me, has to be important, right? And And there's lots of functional evidence to back that up as well, but just from a, a really kind of broad perspective, if something is universal in a tumor, it is likely very important for that tumor. Oh, that's fascinating. All right, Laura, before I let you go, I really wanna talk about a cool new direction for your lab. And that's actually something the American Cancer Society is supporting. And that is that you are, you're working on and again, listeners, don't leave us here. Lars, can I explain it to <laughs> I'll us? I'll explain it. <laughs> You're working on uh, organoid culture models for pancreatic cancer. So this is so cool. So tell us, first of all, what are organoid cultures? Sure. So one of the the tools that we've used in cancer research for, for decades is, is culturing cancer cells in the lab and then being able to treat them and manipulate them in various ways to really test out our ideas. And for most of that time, this has been done with cancer cells that are, you know, digested, broken apart into single cells and grown in flasks and then propagated and passage years and years and years. Probably your listeners have heard of HeLa cells. This is probably the most widely used example of this, but there's, you know, lots of other tumor, tumor type specific cells. There are lots of pancreatic cancer, 2D, two-dimensional cell lines. Um, these, you know, two-dimensional cell lines have advantages, and we've certainly had a lot of important um, advances with those, but there's a lot of ways in which they don't really recapitulate what's actually going on in a tumor. And so um, we have developed this approach um, in collaboration with others, where we we actually culture what we call organoids, which are basically mini tumors. Um, we get you know a pancreatic cancer out of a patient. We can then take a small piece of it and digest it into these little mini tumors that are composed of you know a couple hundred cells, and we grow them in something that's a lot like Jello. It's much more it's fancy science Jello, but it's you know the consistency of Jello, and it really mimics their environment in the body. And so we can use these to study processes that you can't really study in two dimensions. And what we try to study with them is specifically cancer cell invasion. You know, if you think of what causes problems for people with cancer, it's it's the invasion in the metastasis or invasion into adjacent structures. And so we think studying that process is particularly important. And so we can put these mini tumors into 
into science jello and let them invade and then manipulate them in various ways to try to understand kind of the molecular basis for that invasion. You know, one of the most interesting things I think about your lab is that you are approaching pancreatic cancer from kind of both ends of the spectrum. So from the very beginning, so before that cell even starts to think about becoming a pancreatic cancer cell, you're thinking about what is guiding that decision-making process? What DNA, cha changes in the DNA? So, and then on the, the other side, once those mutations have happened, how, how does that actually take place, right? How, how physiologically does the tumor move through the body to undergo that um, those morphological changes that allow it to uh, do those horrible things that allow it to become invasive. So I think it would be so interesting for our audience to understand how you are combining your knowledge, which I think is so, um, it's just so special of genetics and morphology to kind of capture this cool early window to, um, as, as you said, we, we have to detect pancreatic cancer early and and then hopefully prevent it. So maybe help us to understand why what you're doing is so special. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have, you know, science training and a PhD, but I'm also a clinician. I do um, pathology. I'm trained in pathology. I do pathology clinical work. And for listeners that don't know the weeds of medical specialties, that means that I um, spend part of my, my professional life looking at slides under a microscope from patients and helping to make diagnoses on these. And so I think having that clinical training really makes me focus on what are the questions that are going to matter for patients with cancer. You know, I, I often tell trainees in my lab, there's an infinite number of interesting questions we can ask, but there's a far smaller number of important questions that are going to actually matter for patients. And so we try to focus in on not just the interesting, but also the important. And so we try to focus on these kind of clinically important transitions, you know, the transition from being a precancerous lesion that has no ability to invade or hurt anybody, and how does that turn into an invasive cancer? And then a cancer, how does that cancer get into a blood vessel and then be able to travel beyond the pancreas and go to the liver? And so I think using kind of the patients and the, the clinical questions as our, as our touchstone to really say, what are the important questions that we can address with our technology? The other, the other aspect of it is we try to do everything that we do in human tissue samples or in human models. Um, certainly, you know, derived culture models and mouse models have important roles, but I think my kind of background as a pathologist really helps us do everything we can in human samples to really understand what's happening in patients' bodies with cancer. So all that being said, if you could just wave a magic wand and in five years, where would you be? Where would we be in the pancreatic cancer space? I think there's a, a few key areas where we, we have great opportunities to really advance. One is in something we've been talking about in this conversation a lot is in understanding and risk stratifying these precancerous lesions and really understanding which ones are likely to progress to cancer? What are the markers that we have for those so that when we're, we're doing screening in high-risk populations, we can more accurately say 
who has a precancerous lesion that's probably never going to hurt them versus who has a precancerous lesion that's at really high risk and we might want to do a big surgery for. So I think that's the first point is really improving early detection and intervention with more accurate markers of high risk precursors. Um, the other end of it is with targeted therapies. So we haven't talked a ton about that, but there, there are currently a few small subsets of pancreatic cancers that based on their molecular alterations, we really understand what therapies will work well for them. And I, I hope that in the coming years, we'll, we'll continue to carve out more of those. I think pancreatic cancer is so complex. I think we're not gonna find one drug that's gonna work for everybody. There's not a single cure that we're gonna suddenly discover we're gonna give it to everybody, it's gonna work. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna understand these different subsets of tumors and what therapies they might respond well to. So then we'll, you know, do whatever sequencing or molecular profiling of your cancer. And we'll say, you have this alteration, you should get this therapy. And this other patient has this other alteration, they should get this other therapy. And we'll really be able to stratify people better to different targeted therapies by understanding, you know, genetics, but also other types of alterations in their tumors. All right, Laura, I'm going to let you get back to your day job. But before I do, many of our listeners are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers. So is there a message you would like to share with this audience in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think first that there are so many scientists working so hard on your behalf in the cancer research community. Um, most of us, if not all of us, are really fueled by the, the idea of really um, helping patients and changing patients' lives so that you have a lot of good people in your corner. And I think the other thing is just, there is a lot of hope on the horizon. There are a lot of great discoveries being made every day, every week. And so I think both with respect to new therapies and new, new approaches to early detection, I think there is a lot of hope. Well, Laura, we are absolutely thrilled to have you as an ACS researcher. You are just fantastic, and we wish you all the best. Thanks for taking some time to chat with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me.